you're lying awake with no pain control, you're given a paralytic, meaning you're paralyzed, and you're getting cut out, you're being stabbed. And you're pre-verbal, you're, you're just being uh, introduced to this world, and, you know, if it happens once, that fucking sucks, but if it keeps happening, you know, eventually that's gonna, you know, cause your neural pathways to develop in a, in a way that's gonna remember these experiences. This story is about pain, both mental and physical, and it's about how these two kinds of pain are very much connected, despite our culture's insistence that they're not. It's also about our unwillingness to admit that we've made mistakes, big mistakes, even though an admission would certainly lead to an end to suffering and the beginning of healing for large numbers of people. One of the largest and most harmful problems this culture has is its inability to admit wrongdoing, failure, or misjudgment. It seems like it's just too much to sacrifice to say, yeah, I blew it, unless the situation is so far gone that anything else would seem puerile or absurd. All of our leaders do it. So many of our pundits, our commentators, our experts engage in this kind of thing. Actually, I take that back. The idiotic presidential administration has surely broken that taboo, doubling down on errors and lies and calling them brilliance and beautiful truth. Maybe that means we've hit rock bottom. And junkies know, after you hit rock bottom, up is the only way to go. And in this culture, we're all junkies. Junkies for pain medication, for easy fixes, for ways to mask pain that's mental or physical or both. We've convinced ourselves that good old science is surely the best way to go to heal ourselves. Even though science has been co-opted by the health industry, as it's euphemistically called, which really means huge conglomerates and sprawling hospitals and pharmaceutical companies who exist solely to make money. Okay, that's unfair. Not solely, but largely to make money. And these days, whatever dribs and drabs of so-called healthcare still exist in this country, those same companies, using congressional shills as their heavies, are seeking to eradicate entirely. This particular story belongs to Roy Schmuel, who is a filmmaker and an aspiring anxiety coach. Two things which might seem disparate, but as his story unfurls, will have more and more in common. He currently lives in Minneapolis and has for several years been at work on a documentary film about infant surgery and its aftermath. It's a very personal story, and he's kind and courageous and generous to share it with us. Some of his story includes discussion of our physiology, and how sometimes it breaks down, and in his particular case, what's been done to try and fix it, and what he's had to endure as a result. There's nothing too graphic described here, but I figured I'd offer a small warning nonetheless. My name is Roe Shmuel. Um, I'm 37 years old. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I live here with my wonderful wife, Jessie. Um, originally, I'm from uh, New York, uh, Queens specifically, um, and currently I'm producing a documentary film about infant surgery without proper anesthesia and pain control prior to 1987. 
Um, and I'm working on this because I happen to be one of those infants. Um, and so I've endured uh, a long life of you know anxiety and, and pain. Uh, that's pretty much been a mystery to me throughout my life um, and pretty much just blamed it on myself and on the environment. Uh, but this came to my attention several years ago, and I was surprised to have found out about it. The, you know, you, you, when we met previously, the story that you told me um, was, to me, um, really shocking. Um, shocking for two reasons. Um, and, you know, you, you, you briefly touched upon it, um, what it is that you're talking about, you know, the infant surgery without anesthesia or with limited anesthesia. So upon hearing that, right, up until 1987, which is by no means like the dark ages, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you, you, that's our lifetime. You, we would like to think that we live in a time of enlightenment in terms of medical procedures. And so it's shocking to me because my goodness, how could that possibly be the case? Um, and it's so- shocking to me on, on another level, which is I'm constantly reminded of the fact that there's so much that we don't know, and it would be so much better if we admitted that we didn't know instead of lying to ourselves. Uh, and so those are two thoughts that come to mind immediately. React to that or not and and continue that story, um, your personal story. Well, I agree with you um, in terms of, you know, that we didn't experience any of the dark ages, that, you know, the early 80s, you know, we kind of thought that, uh, there, there was some level of advancement in understanding, you know, especially infant pain or pain in general, which I think is still anyway a very difficult subject today uh, for adults, for children, for everybody. But looking back and kind of seeing, you know, I and from my own personal experience, I always thought that, you know, I got the best care, um, that everything was taken care of. I never thought twice about these surgeries and never thought that that's, uh, what causes me to feel the way that I do. Um, it's still something that I'm accepting. Uh, I think the belief aspect of it is difficult for those who feel that they may have been affected because it, it, I do need to, to point out that, you know, we, we don't know if everybody who had surgery before 18 months of age uh, prior to 1987 is dealing with the same issues. Um, I don't want to, you know, make a blanket statement. Uh, but the truth is, we don't know to what extent uh, these people are affected. So, you know, what kind of surgery did you need when you were an infant? And what are the kinds of pain that you endured? Um, and what did you, you, you touched upon this, but what, what did you do as a very small person in order to cope? So, okay, so I was born with uh, something called Hirschsprung's disease. Uh, basically what happens there is that, um, not all the nerve cells, uh, reach, uh, down through the colon. Uh, so basically you just have, uh, intestine without, uh, the ability to push food through, to push poop through. Uh, And so what happens is at that time, um, the first surgery was a, uh, for a colostomy, uh, because they were waiting for me to get a little bit bigger, so then they can do the the more serious surgery, which is the pull through, and that's when they cut out the part uh, that uh, you know is sans nerve cells, and and so then they and then they reconnect it. Uh, so I just had a colostomy at four months, and then 
a revision a couple of months later, and then the closure of it um, just before the corrective surgery at about 10, 11 months. Um, in addition to the surgeries, I mean, many of the inv invasive procedures that, you know, many infants face, especially in the NICU, are usually done without um, any kind of analgesia. And so, yeah, so going to the part about, I have to stop here just to say, you know, it's interesting, like I've been doing these interviews uh, for the film and it's just interesting to be on the other end of it because, right. you know, it, it, it is such a difficult topic and I'm obviously clearly patient with everybody who's uh, giving me the time, just the same, you know, here and, and, it, it, it's it's interesting like it is a very difficult thing to talk about because on the one hand you know like it's it's right there beneath the surface you know and just ready to kind of like explode you know and and that's something that you know i think just makes it uh, you know very difficult to talk about especially when it comes to pre-verbal trauma and all the things that you know we're dealing with today um you know, so you asked me what it was like when I was little. How did I cope? The truth is I never said anything about pain. The other thing I was dealing with at the time also was uh, being incontinent, um, which at the time we all believed was due directly to the surgery and to Hirschsprung's because they cut out certain things and maybe certain nerve endings, you know, for sensation. But today I'm no longer incontinent, and that means that there wasn't any structural uh, issue and what I've been learning is that PTSD in children, you know, uh, leads to certain regressive uh, behaviors, and it feels like to me that that's what was going on for so many years, and and so that's why I believe that for many people who are dealing with, especially when they're dealing with more complications and more issues post-surgery and as they grow up it, it's no longer about the surgery so they they lose that idea that the surgery itself could have had an impact instead it's the you know the the effects of the disorder and the surgeries and all the complications that come after it and so we all we only think about that you know when i think of myself as a, a small child i mean you know i i can't tell you how i got through it i just I just know that, you know, every day was a terror-filled day. It It's just, you know, it, it's something that you can't really, as a child, talk about. What I'm understanding right now, and this is my second time through with you, and this didn't occur to me the first time, is every single minute of every single day for you was pain. Yeah, and it still and, is. And, and it's, right. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question that I had, are you angry? You know, that's a that's a really good really good question. After I, I graduated from um, the SVA, the School of Visual Arts, where I went for film, uh, you know, after you graduate, you're kind of like, well, what do I do now? You know, and, and for me, it was kind of like, well, I want to make a documentary and I want to make it about Hirschsprung's disease. And I wasn't sure why um, exactly, you know, at the time. I mean, I know that sounds uh, trivial, you know, that they, that may not make sense, but at the time, like it really didn't make that much sense to me. All I knew was that I wanted to do something like that, and I started working on that film, and I did. I started shooting material, and where do you start for a film like that? Well, I basically went to this organization called the Pull Through Network, uh, which is a support network for 
people, families, and children who are dealing with um, anorectal malformations and colorectal anomalies uh, and similar disorders. And Hirschsprung's is one of the colorectal uh, issues. And that's actually, it's, it's interesting because when I was nine, they held their first meeting at, at Schneider's at LIJ. Um, and I was the oldest kid there. And all LIJ, the- Long Island Jewish? Yeah. And, and um, yeah, now Schneider's is Cohen's and whatever. That's the children's hospital. Interchangeable Jewish names from New exactly, York. Exactly, you know. <laughs> and all <laughs> I want, honestly, is that all these hospitals should just be named like the Children's Hospital of Queens, you know, the Children's Hospital of New York. Mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I it just, it, I can't, it bothers me so much when I see that people, like, they donate money and then want their names, you know, like. There's the yeah. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Exactly. But that, but that's the thing. That they did it right. York, in New York, they don't have that. It's it's only now maybe they have the New York Hospital of Queens and like things like that, you know. But like in the rest of the country, you know exactly. You have like the Children's Hospital of Cincinnati. You know, people in, are humbler. In Pittsburgh, exactly. Anyway, so you know it's interesting because I was the oldest one there, um, and all the rest of like the the kids were either infants or toddlers, and they were trying to push me to like talk to them or like to be engaged with them and. All I wanted was really not to have anything to do with anybody. And I think I was just upset that my mom dragged me out there, you know, because I hated going to the hospital anyway, because I would have to go for regular checkups. So this was like, oh, I have to go on another, you know, it's not like this expedition, but, you know, it kind of felt that way. So I kind of revisited the pull through network and discovered that they had grown and they're doing a lot. And I got in touch with them and I went and uh, spoke at uh, their conference in 2008 Mm. Um, to kind of discuss the film and the idea behind the film. And through that, I was able to meet some people um, who I interviewed. Uh, later on, I visited them and we shot some material. Also shot a, a, a narrative uh, vignette that I planned for that film, which was uh, about one of my experiences uh, dealing with incontinence, you know, where I remember being under one of my friend's, uh, like, beds and, uh, you know, clearly like smelling you know and there were you know adults there and whatever and and i just remember being so scared that i just didn't want to be out there with them because i knew they knew that something was going on and so this is you know and through you know that part of the project i started i discovered and this is like six years ago uh, this whole idea about infant surgery without anesthesia and i discovered that but i came across uh, a few things uh, two blogs, at, well, three blogs really, two, but one belonged to a, a psychiatrist in West Virginia. And basically saying that this is something that happened, that prior to 1987, infants were operated on without anesthesia. And I was like, well, that sounds crazy, you know? Right. Like, it does sound, it sounds completely crazy. Yeah. It's and, 1987. I mean, exactly. Exactly. The question I well you don't answer this now, but let's push like what happened in 1987 that that thing shift like obviously there's that's a watershed moment something happened yeah, right they changed something their minds. Did. yeah but we'll get to that yeah so began you know the quest for trying to figure out exactly what was causing the fear and the pain and you know the incontinence always seemed like that was the the culprit uh, it made sense to me to some degree. 
And so I decided to see if the hospital still had any more of my records. You know, they were able to find 30 pages. Um, and within that, you know, were six of the seven records of operation. And on the records of operation, it shows, that the, and this is something the surgeon writes. This isn't the anesthesiologist. And he wrote general anesthesia. And so when I saw that, I'm like, oh, so I, of course I had anesthesia, you know? And so, like, I kind of put that to bed. But then I went to see that psychiatrist in West Virginia. And that's actually, I was just there last week interviewing his wife because he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, they have a clinic there called Intensive Trauma Therapy. And they're the first ones who basically made, not only made the connection between the that the fact that that was that that happened that there could have been long term effects and that they were offering treatment for it and so I the went first, there. They're the first ones. This guy was that the I, first that person I, that I was aware of that I'm aware of. And so that. And when did he come to this? Like, how long ago did this psychiatrist like reach this point? And was it just because like he began to see like how did he stumble across this when he was a resident? Many decades ago, he noticed, I think he was working, and this is a similar story to another doctor, a researcher who kind of will go back to, you know, the watershed moment, but it's kind of similar where I think he was working in the ICU and he would see these babies coming out of, um, coming out of the, the, the OR and just in like shitty shape, you know, but he discovered that it was done without anesthesia or pain control. Uh, or because anesthesia is a whole other subject about understanding what it actually is, because there's so many different com components and that, you know, and this is why I wish I can find someone from the medical community who would be willing to talk to me. And that's a whole other topic. Well, it's something um, we need to get to because it, it, yeah. it connects back to our comment earlier, or, you know, where we both are kind of in agreement that this is like a, a kind of. Uh, deliberate ignorance or denial on the part of the medical community. Like, we didn't do this. We would never have been so negligent, or it couldn't have happened, which is the kind of thing, with no experience whatsoever, no personal experience whatsoever, just my own skepticism and, and general cynicism and, and, <laughs> and hatred <laughs> for everything. Yeah. That I, and that's what I that like I, about I would, you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. Like most, like any other corporation, which is how I view them, they never want to take responsibility for anything. Did you ever talk to him? Did you ever get a chance to talk to him or did he yes. die before you got the chance? Okay. I, got, I got to meet with him and, and I'm I'm kind of closing, you know, the circle here a little bit in the conversation, <laughs> thank, tying it thank, together. Thank goodness. Somebody <laughs> go, has to. So I'm going to go back to the records of operation and that they, you know, that it was written, that it was written on their uh, general anesthesia. And I showed it to him and he's like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, that sounds fucking great. You know, and <laughs> that's pretty much when it became a situation where it was like, wow, you know, doctors lie, you know, like the medical community would lie to me about this or to my parents, like, didn't, wouldn't they tell them? That they were doing it this right. way, you know, like that. So this was completely shocking to you. Yeah. Like you, you don't want to think this because you don't, because you don't want to think it because yeah. it, it's it's inconceivable. And to my parents as well, you know, when I told them about this, I mean, you know, I think they're still kind of in disbelief. So why would doctors not use? Why would they not use it? Why would they yeah. use limited amounts? So okay, so here's here's the crux of it all. 
There were a few different reasons. One was babies don't feel pain. How can that be even a thing? I mean, I don't, it doesn't... It, it, I mean, it gets better. It gets even better. Uh, if they do feel pain, they won't remember it. That was the that was another one, and this is probably the most understandable one, which is they didn't think that infants could tolerate the drugs at the time. Okay. Um, and so you know that's reasonable, but you know we discovered <clears throat> that the drugs that we use today were kind of developed in the '60s, um, so they were available already, like. 20 years before this kind of like, you know, became an issue, um, you know, an issue that really became a quiet revolution within the medical world, but mm. not beyond it, you know, and then to think about what we're dealing with in, in this world. And, you know, when we're dealing with, uh, with, with pain and we're dealing, you know, with, with mental health uh, disorders and especially suicide. And this is something that's brought up by, um, by the researchers who were kind of doing the, you know, figuring out that, like, yes, infants can, A, infants feel pain, B, infants can tolerate anesthesia. So then, so then you know, you have these competing narratives uh, that you have to somehow um, reconcile. And the fact is that you can't reconcile them because the only way to reconcile them is to admit um, that people were uh, just bald-faced lying to you people who weren't just random everyday people who are like trying to take your money these are doctors who are uh responsible for your health and well-being yes i'm interested in those you said and this this led to some very dark times i i, I want to know at least a thumbnail sketch of what of what that darkness looks like somehow i found my way where i finally scheduled an appointment to see a gastroenterologist and to talk about the pain itself um, because I'd never gone to a doctor to discuss the pain. Why not? That's I mean, I, that's a really my, good question. Because I, I listen, I didn't think it was it was. I just thought it was normal. Right. You know, I honestly thought that's how everybody felt, and that I was the one who was uh, weak, and I needed to overcome it. And so that was pretty much you know the the motivation behind everything I did. You know. Through, through my adolescence into my 20s uh, was all about kind of overcoming that and showing everyone else that I was okay when I knew in, that I wasn't, you know, and I, I'm sure everyone else saw it too. But, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm look, I'm standing, you know, like, and everything's great, you know, and we're doing stuff and, you know, you seem happy, so I'll be happy. And your parents... You obviously share this information with them. Well, I only told them about the pain around the same time that I'd um, uh, I went to uh, Morgantown. So they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know. Since you were, yeah, a, ch- a baby. They didn't. Yeah, know. I mean, I think. Listen, I've. They always knew I was an anxious, sensitive child and person. Um, I think they always knew, but they kind of all, but they also saw me, uh, trying to thrive and I was to some degree thriving, you know? So I guess in their minds, like it didn't seem like there was anything, uh, that major happening. I was just kind of like everybody else, you know, with, with the ups and downs that we all confront. Okay. So, uh, you're beginning to put things together. Yeah. I finally decided to schedule this appointment. And I went to go see this gastroenterologist at UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a great institution. Um, when you 
talking about uh, the medical community as we know it today. And so a wonderful doctor who spent an hour with me, at least mm -hmm. an hour, uh, and then he went out for about 10 minutes to, you know, look at the images that I'd brought, uh, x-rays and barium enemas and things like that. And while I was in the room by myself, you know, I honestly felt ridiculous because at that moment, I was kind of realizing that this was something that was psychic. And I didn't want it to be something psychic. I wanted it to be something functional and organic. Like there was still a problem that, you know, that I was feeling this pain. You know, there must be something wrong in there. But, you know, he comes back in and, you know, basically kind of ends the appointment with basically telling me that I was, he's like, you were abused. And, you know, I'm sitting there and of course this goes right over my head and I'm like, um, okay, that sounds great. You know, like, <laughs> here's the difficult thing. And, and I, I want to make this clear and I want to make sure this is heard, you know, that I'm not, I don't, I'm not demonizing the medical community as it is today. Um, I think strides have been taken. I think people always did their best and always wanted to do their best because as we know, you know, doctors and nurses and anybody else involved in, in healthcare all do it because they want to help people. You know, or so we want to believe. That's why I just, you know, we always have to make sure that we're, we're giving credit to the people that are doing really great work. And this is one situation um, and one doctor who really took the time and the notes that he sent me afterwards were like three pages. And that basically led to um, me kind of, I guess, reconciling with the idea that, yes, this is a, a psychic issue, you know, meaning it's a psychological issue. And that was something that I'd, I'd been against, e even in therapy, you know, fighting against the idea that what I was doing there had nothing to do with the fact that I was mentally ill in any way. Um, mm. And that's a problem, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, then I kind of entered into a, a, a special program and, and kind of got, a, you know, recognizing that major depression was a part of my life ever since I was little and that I just went in and out of episodes, uh, you know, and that the anxiety and fear, you know, was a direct result of those experiences um, because there was nothing else that happened in my life that would cause that kind of physiological change in, you know, my brain function. Um, it just, there, there's, you know, there aren't too many things that can do that except for some like serious, serious trauma. Um, and in this case, you know, you can kind of equate it to torture because that's what it is. If you're lying awake with no pain control, you're given a paralytic, meaning you're paralyzed and you're getting cut out, you're being stabbed, you know, like, and there, and you're preverbal, you're, you're just being uh, introduced to this world. And, you know, if it happens once that fucking sucks, but if it keeps happening, you know, eventually that's going to, you know, cause your neural pathways to develop in a, in a way that's going to remember these experiences. At that time, like, you know, our, our neurons are firing like crazy. I mean, it's like, it's crazy time, you know, you're, you're just reacting to the world. And so if that's your introduction, you know, imagine what your life is going to be like later. And I, and I think a lot of people, and I, I come across this, and I don't know about you, but you know, people don't believe that what happens to them as children or even infants affects who they are today. 
And I used to believe that. I used to think, I used to think the same same way. And and honestly, now, based on the science, you know, we're not talking just like what Rowie feels today. It's based on the science that's out there and the studies that are ongoing that we're discovering that you know preverbal trauma and childhood trauma can can if if it goes untreated can continue into adulthood and cause other, you know, health-related, mental health-related disease and disorders. You didn't want it to be a psychological thing. And what you're doing there is you're, you're putting a divide between those two things, saying one thing is legitimate and one thing is illegitimate. And that psychological pain is illegitimate, is what you were telling yourself. Yes. And that's essentially your experience now when you're talking to people who still refuse to believe that childhood trauma leads to adult trauma. I want to know why that is. I want to know what it is about our culture that has created this kind of complete and total disconnect and unwillingness. Like, what have we done to ourselves um, that we wind up lying to ourselves, denying a truth? What it ultimately leads to is, you know, a cycle of abuse, right? You become the abuser. Mm. Um, you become, you know, you come, you, you try to medicate yourself with some form of alcohol or drugs or, or something else so it leads to addiction which um, is its own kind of abuse mm-hmm. like these are all things that we are really good at as, as a culture abusing ourselves and others and it seems to all stem from an unwillingness to admit that we all endure continued psychological pain if you're having a problem like with if your heart you know you're going to go to the cardiologist and the cardiologist is going to do whatever he can or she to help you um, get better. So why is it that people are, are so willing to go get their heart checked out, you know, and other organs, but the brain itself doesn't get the same respect, you know, and doesn't get the same attention. And so that's where, you know, we kind of like go in, you know, we go deeper into kind of understanding what's happening in the brain um, and what the brain actually is. You know, the brain is an organ. You know, everything that's happening there is is physiological. But somehow through these like electrochemical, you know, uh, functions or God, whatever's happening in there, you know, we have something called the mind. You know, the mind is the space in which we live in. That's who we are. You know, that's where we think. That's where we feel. What we're kind of understanding now, what I'm beginning to understand based on on reading and, and, and talking to people is each neural neural pathway is built based on your experiences. And so you're going to continue firing through those neural pathways. And if you don't do anything about it, they're just going to continue in that pattern unless you change it. And that, and that's the thing that we're learning now is that we can actually change that by using the mind to interact with, you know, what's actually happening in the brain um, to change it so that then you're no longer experiencing the same anxiety and fear and all of these things that are natural to us as humans because, you know, anxiety, you know, one, belongs to all of us and it's there for a reason. Um, But then there's a problem that happens once it gets, you know, once you start having those physiological issues that continue uh, and build upon itself, 
let me just state this. I am not a doctor. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is all stuff that I read and I, I talk about and, and study and so forth. Uh, but I don't want anyone to come back and be like, well, you know, and one thing that's helped me in life is this, is that I've, I've learned that it's okay not to know something. Um, because if you don't take that chance of even saying what you think you're not sure of what you're saying, you're not going to actually learn what you need to know. So this, this film now, um, who are you interviewing? Uh, who are you trying to interview? What is the ultimate story you wish to tell? Um, is there some element of kind of investigative journalism here or are you just kind of, um, wishing to tell the story of people who are victims, um, who are in, you know, various stages of coming to terms with what they've experienced? So that was four questions. Yeah. To be, to start, I mean, the, the number one purpose of the film for me is to get this story out there. So people are aware of it because in my mind and what, what I kind of believe is that there are many people who are suffering and we know this, you know, like we see it in, you know, in so many different forms. Um, and that, that this is just another, uh, a possibility of, you know, what's causing someone to feel the way they do. And it's not only, you know, singular to infant surgery without anesthesia, you know, we're talking about, you know, a whole range of traumas that, you know, that occur pre-verbally and even post-verbally as a child, you know, that are going to stick with you. You know, traumas beginning to become uh, uh, something of a of, of relevance only because of how we associate it with soldiers. And so a lot of people just think that trauma, PTSD is, is, is just something you get in combat. Uh, you know, but the truth is it, it can happen to you if you're in a car accident. Um, and if you start feeling all these effects later, you know, like you're still experiencing pain, there's a good ch chance that it's psychological. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for the most part, people don't want to admit that. Um, going to who I've been interviewing. So I've been interviewing other uh, patients. I call them patients. How do you find them? Uh, well, the first two that I found, they're the ones who wrote those blogs about, were writing those blogs six years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, uh, her name is Wendy Williams, and she lives in uh, California. And then there's another gentleman by the name of Fred Vanderbaum who lives in Adelaide, Australia. And he writes a blog called Surviving Infant Surgery. You know, they both kind of talk about two things. A, the reason why they had surgery, which was pyloric stenosis. Uh, and then B, kind of like talking about this whole idea of the... of PTSD and the long-term effects of, you know, infant surgery without proper anesthesia and pain control. And what are you finding in the medical health profession? Are people uh, forthcoming? Are they resistant? Are they unwilling to speak about this? Like, w w what's been your experience there? Uh, so when it comes to the medical community, that's become a little bit more more of a challenge. And I've uh, approached several institutions and organizations um, and I've had minimal contact with them until they basically forget who I am. And I get it. I get that, you know, and this is the way that I approach it. I always say, you know, that I'm, I'm not litigious. I'm not here seeking, you know, any kind of like compensation for my own experience. And that shouldn't be the goal. And, and kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about anger, 
was that the the reason why I was able to move forward with this f- film in the past year is that I wasn't coming at it from anger, you know, and that wasn't the point, you know, you can't antagonize people and then expect them to talk to you, you know, and be open with you. And so with the medical community, this is, this has become difficult and I'm, I'm really looking for retired physicians who A, can, were witnesses to this and B, are retired and have nothing to lose. Um, so that's a challenge, uh, because, you know, just like the surgeon who operated on me when I was an infant, he passed away like 14 years ago. What's important now is that people need to know and understand that these events can have everlasting effects and can change the landscape of our mental health approach and care and treatment um, and, and, you know, will make the world a better place. I mean, that's ultimately the goal. You know, the healthier our society is, the better people are, the better they feel, you know, the kinder we all are to each other. You are a filmmaker and you are an anxiety coach. Yes. What is an anxiety coach? So an anxiety coach basically is a therapy done by somebody who isn't a licensed clinician. Now, I can't even call it therapy. I mean, the legalese t- to get around this all is that this is pure entertainment. <laughs> it, You're it, not standing on a street corner, though. You're, no, you're... <laughs> no, but it, it, it should be understood as such. Uh, okay. You know, I'm not able to diagnose anybody. I'm not able, you know, if just like any therapist, you know, if you're in, in dire straits in a situation where you're about to kill yourself, like, you know, you go to the hospital. Yeah. What I want to do is, and what I think the challenge is in mental health is the dissemination of information. Um, and that, and for there, and for someone to be there to help that brain you know, that that's that's ailing and that can't fully take care of itself because it itself isn't willing to admit certain things to look for the right help. And so that's kind of what what I envision anxiety coaching as being, you know, and helping people with different skills um, and and different ways to cope with their anxiety until they're able to overcome it. Because the way that I imagine people who are looking for help and based on being on the Internet and seeing how people interact with each other and the information they're looking for is that I want to pop up in, a, in one of those searches where someone's looking to find out what anxiety is, you know, like how do I treat anxiety? Um, is it possible? You know, like what are all the different things that are out there? Um, you know, and I've, I've just spent you know, the greater part of this last decade studying all of this. So while I don't, you know, have necessarily a degree, I definitely, uh, I've been able to really acquire knowledge that I think can be helpful to others. I see the connection, the inextricable connection between the physical and the emotional, between the mind and the body. There is no mind-body split. It's all one thing. And um, the concept of pain like absorbing a trauma um, and it could be an emotional trauma, but absorbing a physical trauma and then having that have residual effects over the course of time is something that I have experienced and understand not nearly to the degree that you have about three months after my mother died pretty much out of nowhere. I began to have this 
wild pain uh, in and around my shoulder, rotator cuff, and also in in kind of like on in the, my shoulder blade, um, and also like near the nerve root there, where all those nerves come together and the shoulder goes through. Um, and I went to uh, you know you know the gamut, right? I went to all the physicians, I went to all the pain specialists, uh, I did everything, and no one could tell me anything definitive about what was going on. And it's a long story that I won't get into, but it, it, well, I already have, but <laughs> that I won't elongate. And I went to this physical therapist, lucky enough to find her, and she said, "Yes, uh, you know, here's what's going on here, um, and here's why the pain is both physical and emotional at the same time. Whatever trauma you experience," she said, "in that area, has and I'm using air quotes here, has healed." But your mind is so used to there being pain there that a, uh, we'll call it maybe neural pathway, but a pathway has been established wherein the mind reacts as though there is pain there because that's all it knows right now. So she just, she showed me this diagram. It was like a, I don't know. It was like this, she described it as like this weird kind of squiggle, you know, where your brain has squiggled out this section of your body where it's just like, Pain. Okay, I know. Pain there. Thank you very much. What goes on here? And it has so many other things going on that it doesn't have the time to like return to that area and say, oh, the situation's changed there. And it's much more complicated than that. And, and I, I, I have definitely butchered the explanation, but it made a lot of sense to me in that moment. And, um, and, and I think triggered the healing finally. And, um, you know, I'm I'm now pain free in, in my shoulder, and I, I I really owe a debt of credit to to her for explaining that psychological aspect of it to me. You know, you didn't answer the question about what it looked like when it got real dark, and I, I don't need you to. Um, but it seems like um, I'm sure you have moments, but you're on the other side or coming around the other side of this, and and. And, and turning it into two major creative things, one being the film and the other being a wish to help others. And um, I don't think that happens for everyone. And what do you attribute this positive, restorative um, direction that you've tried, you, you, that you're taking now? What do you attribute that to? Um, I guess... Uh... The only way I could put it is that I've always just been motivated by good people. Whenever I've seen acts of kindness, you know, at times when I couldn't provide the same kind of uh, uh, care for somebody, you know, like just witnessing others do it, um, the willingness to be kind, you know, how simple it is um, and how how far it goes, you know, because I just think about the times when people have been kind to me and how, you know, that that really goes far, you know, like if you pay attention to it, it goes far. Um, and so, I mean, that's, I guess, one way to kind of explain it, I, you know, throughout life, you know, you have role models and people who are, who are just good and, and want to help others. And I paid attention to that. Um, and I've always found it difficult to to kind of be motivated by other things. Uh, and I haven't been successful in those things because I really feel guilty when it comes to uh, pursuing certain things at the co- at the expense of others. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I don't, you know, the money or any kind of reward that comes after that just means absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, right now it's, it's really just, you know, that's all that can be done. That's the only thing, you know, that can come out of these experiences, not only mine, but so many others. Clearly I'm not alone and you're not alone in your experiences. Um, and so the idea is just to, to, you know, knowledge is power, you know, like the more we, we know. And Jean Piaget, uh, psychologist, I just remember this one thing that he said, which is, you know, intelligence is what you, what you do when you don't know what to do. How much of our pain do we keep to ourselves? Because we think it makes us look weak. Because we think we're the only ones who are experiencing it and no one would understand us. Or they dismiss us. Or they call us liars. How much more damage might we be doing to ourselves by hiding our pain, denying our pain, lying about our pain? For me, there's also a real fear of pain that I would guess has led to exacerbating a problem in the past. What is pain anyway? I learned something about pain from that same physical therapist to whom I owe my ability to run and throw a ball these days. From what I recall, and it's been a while, I might need a refresher. It's a way to protect an injured area and also a way to jumpstart the healing process. It signals to the body to take it easy on that part of itself, at least until the healing has begun. The body really does know what it's doing, in the end. We forget that, I think. And I think that what happens is that in our haste to mask pain, because like me we're afraid of feeling it, or we want to do away with it quickly so it doesn't debilitate us because we can't go one minute without being able to accomplish every single task the same way all the time, or because admitting we feel pain would, as Roe said, make us look weak, we muddle the process. In masking the pain so heavily, we confuse our brains, and it continues to send messages to pain receptors, perhaps long after the area has healed enough. Like Roe, I am no medical professional, nor am I any kind of ancient healer, but I submit that if we were more willing to accept our pain, we might find that it would be quicker to dissipate. I remember reading a portrait of the Samai, an indigenous people living, or who once lived, in a remote region of the Philippines. The anthropologist who did the study was keen to depict the Samai as a non-violent people. That was a big part of the story he wanted to tell about them. In one episode... He tells the story of a Samai man who gets injured and falls into the arms of his wife, who takes to attending to the injury. The author is struck by how unabashed the man is about showing his pain as he writhes and moans and wails in his wife's arms. That he could allow for a woman to see his pain and hear his anguish voiced in full is somehow astonishing to the anthropologist. I guess this is because he comes from a culture where men don't show their pain and are, in fact, lauded for being strong and silent, even when they're badly hurt. And what's wrong with mental and emotional pain anyway? Why is it that only in the last half-century has this culture begun to accept that people seeking emotional support, therapy, and psychological help aren't somehow broken for good? Even so, the mental health community is often quick to prescribe medication for mental illness, and we, of course, are all too quick to pop the pills. Forget about side effects, misdiagnosis, and the need for tailoring medicine for problems which certainly vary from individual to individual, 
from human being to human being, because, of course, we're not all the same. That Roy thought his pain was normal and rarely spoke about it baffles me, but it begins to make sense when I consider just how much we don't share about ourselves because we're afraid to. Now Roy's telling his story and that of others in the form of his documentary film. Information about his anxiety coaching practice can be found at IKnowNowAnxietyCoach.com. That's I-K-N-O-W-N-O-W, AnxietyCoach.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide, which is the first in the show's second year. Shows from its first can be found on my website, samschindler.com, on the What We Will Abide Facebook page, and through the podcast host, Pippa, which hosts my podcast for free. Thanks, Pippa. If you are so inclined, you can leave an iTunes review, which helps newer listeners find the show. And don't forget to try out Wonder With Us, a podcast hosted by my wife, Jamie Beth, and me about watching the hit TV show from the 1980s and 90s, The Wonder Years, with our kids. Once again, I extend my thanks to Roy Schmuel for letting me ask him all kinds of invasive questions. He stayed cool throughout my interrogation, even when I didn't. There's so many questions that I want to ask you I'm, in so many I'm, directions. Listen, I'm here for you. <laughs> I'm here to get you through this. <laughs>